Good morning from the Financial Times. Today is Friday, April 24th, and this is your FT News Briefing. Germany is throwing its weight behind a fund to help Eurozone economies stung by coronavirus lockdowns. And yesterday, the WHO accidentally published draft documents showing disappointing results in a potential coronavirus treatment. Plus, the FT's global business columnist Rana Faruhar argues that the pandemic could push the U.S. into a new era of austerity. I'm Mark Filipino, and here's the news you need to start your day. A few days ago, Spain called on EU leaders to approve up to one and a half trillion euros in grants. They would go toward rebuilding the bloc's economies that have been hit hardest by the coronavirus pandemic. And yesterday, at a brief video conference summit among leaders, Angela Merkel said that Germany is ready to make substantial contributions to such a recovery fund. But the conditions of the fund are still up in the air. Leaders weren't able to agree on the size of the fund and whether the commission should hand out grants or loans. France, Spain, and Italy, the European countries that have been hit hardest by the virus, are pushing for grants. Ms. Merkel insists that any funding borrowed must be paid back. But Germany's support signals something important. Before the meeting, Ms. Merkel told lawmakers in Berlin that they should be ready to make higher contributions to the EU budget, known as the Multiannual Financial Framework, or the MFF. Northern European countries are some of the biggest net contributors to the MFF, They've been insisting that their payments be no more than 1% of gross national income. No consensus was reached on the way forward, but diplomats said the coronavirus crisis has forced these countries to consider more substantial commitments in the face of Europe's deepest recession since the 1930s. Now, you might remember that last week there were reports of a leaked video presentation out of the University of Chicago that raised investor hopes for a coronavirus treatment. The video contained positive feedback from a clinical trial of a drug that Gilead Sciences had developed called remdesivir. At the time, the price of Gilead stock surged to a high of almost $84 per share, which valued the company at nearly $100 billion. But yesterday, news from another trial involving the drug sent Gilead shares down sharply, and trading of the stock was briefly stopped on the Nasdaq. The FT's Donato Paolo Mancini explains what happened. Yesterday, for a couple of brief moments, the results of the first randomized trial involving the drug were posted onto the WHO's website in error. We were able to see these top-line results. They were removed afterwards. And they didn't show any benefit for the patients that were enrolled in in this trial on this drug. So the WHO accidentally publishes this and the results aren't good. Gilead then comes out and warned that the post included, quote, inappropriate characterizations of the study. So, Donato, what does this all mean then? Right. Gilead is saying that we should wait and see till the full results, the full peer-reviewed results are out. They're pointing to a potential benefit for remdesivir, which is a drug, particularly among patients that were treated early in the disease. So we will have to wait and see what happens when these full peer-reviewed results are out. What, What happened yesterday, and that was really interesting, is that the market seems to have taken a really 
sort of make it or break it view on this drug because um, any positive sign there was a leak in recent weeks that suggested that there was that, that the drug was indeed working in that sense that's in market soaring it's an equity soaring in general when EFT published its report yesterday there was a dip in the markets at the same time so you could obviously see an effect on Gilead stock but then you could also see an overall effect on stocks and I think what this tells us is that markets really are primed to pay really close attention to any new information that emerges from these trials. Just because if the drug is actually shown to work, then we, we could have a way out. So Donato, is remdesivir the only option here or are there others? What, we're, what are we looking at? No, we're looking at many other options. Remdesivir is a drug that is known as an antiviral, so it acts on the replication of the virus itself. And it targets that aspect of the disease, so if you will, the root cause of it. And a number of other randomized control trials are going on, including one by Gilead that we will see results for at the end of this month, and then other results are expected next month. And a bunch of other treatment options are being explored at the moment, which include anti-inflammatory drugs and drugs that can address the immune system overdrive that we see in some severe COVID-19 patients. How will spending and consumption habits change when we emerge from what's being called the Great Lockdown? Rana Faruhar is the FT's global business columnist. We have her on regularly to get her take on what's happening in the economy. And in her latest column, she argues that, if history is any judge, the U.S. could be headed towards a new era of austerity. I think about what we're going through right now and where we've been really in the last 10 years and where we might be going in the next two or three as being quite similar to the period between 1918 and 1932. So if you go back in 1918, of course, there was the Spanish flu. There was a downturn because of that. The Fed then in 1921 cut interest rates. And this set the stage for the 1920s, the roaring 20s, a sort of a big asset bubble, big debt bubble. People were buying a lot of things on credit. Very similar to the run-up we saw really in the last 10 years since 2008. And then in 1929, of course, there was a market crash, and we have just had our COVID-triggered market crash, which also is really about corporate debt and the unwinding of this bubble in everything that we've seen over the last 10 years. Now, if you look at what happened after 1929, into the 30s, the Great Depression, and even into World War II and that period in the early 1940s, you saw American consumers start to really save a lot more money. We think of American consumers, of course, as the consumers of last resort. We save pretty much nothing. But back in the 1930s and into the 40s, savings rates went up to about 25, 26, even 28%. That really helped to balance out the debt that was being taken taken on by the public sector, some of the downturn in private companies that was being balanced out by the fact that people were saving more. So Rana, has anyone been able to actually make this transition from spend to save? It's a great question. You know, what you're seeing in the data is that people who can save are saving. So if you look at wealthier folks, they are really ramping up and have been ramping up their savings. Middle class, a little bit less. Working class, not so much. I mean, people that have lost their jobs obviously can't save. In fact, they're looking for the government to help them, rightfully so, during this period. But I think, you know, in the 30s, you had major works programs. You had the public sector backstopping incomes, trying to create jobs. So if we see things like that coming online, then you may well see people start to act more freely 
frugally. I would just note that I think millennials who came out into the job market in the post-financial crisis era, they already had different spending patterns than their parents. Things have never been great, really, for them. They've always lived with elevated unemployment in their age group, and they're going to be dealing with more of that now. And behavioral economic research shows us that when we come of age in a particular period, be it the post-war boom or the Great Depression, that shapes our behavior for life. So I really do think that we might be seeing the creation of a new generation austerity, if you will. Okay, so I guess my question is, Rana, how do policymakers incentivize saving after we've built ourselves into habits that encourage yeah. debt? Yeah, no, great question. Well, I think we're going to have to really look carefully at the last 50 years of policy choices. Since the 1980s onward, we have really been incentivizing debt, you know, corporate debt, consumer debt. I mean, one of the reasons that I'm able to live in a home the size that I, I do is because I can write mortgage deductions off of my taxes. Corporations have those same incentives to take on a lot of debt. I think we may see policymakers start to say, you know, maybe we should incentivize savings. I think we're going to move away from an era of debt into more of an era of saving more, producing more, and consuming less. You can read more on all of these stories at FT.com. This has been your daily FT News Briefing. Make sure you check back next week for the latest business news. The FT News Briefing is produced by Amy Keene, Fiona Simon, and me, Mark Filipino. Our editor is Amelia Mahasek, and we had help from Gavin Coleman and Michael Bruning. Our theme song is by Metaphor Music. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. Did you know the Capital Ideas podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin? Through the words and experiences of investment professionals, you'll discover who was their best mentor, what's a mistake they made that changed their approach, and how do they find their next great idea? Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc., 